cycled off coffee for the next little while. Taking a break from it for a moment, so we'll see how I'm able to hang today. This is episode 41 of The Modern Recordist, and another episode with an in-studio guest. It's going to be a super packed episode with tons of awesomeness. We're going to be hanging out in the studio for the next hour, hour and a half with a very accomplished songwriter. This is the podcast where we talk all about designing and living your life as an extraordinary artistic visionary, discussing inspiring and creative ideas around making music and art that creates an impact in the world. On this podcast, we sit down with musicians, songwriters, artists, producers, and all manner of artistic visionaries to learn exactly what we have to do and who we have to be to create meaning and live out our artistic visions. I'm your host, John Stinson, a Nashville-based producer and recording engineer, a collector of experiences, a lifelong learner, a lifelong teacher, and an artistic visionary in my own right. And I welcome you to episode 41 of The Modern Recordist. Sitting across from me today, I have a songwriter, musician, producer, engineer, and author. He's been in the music business for more than 20 years. And in that time, he's worked and collaborated with up-and-coming songwriters, multi-platinum selling artists, and Grammy winners. These people include artists such as Kevmo, Kesha, Lisa Loeb, Chris Barron of The Spin Doctors, Mickey Hart of The Grateful Dead. Uh, he's had uh, songs cut by major label artists in country, pop, and jazz, and his song, Till You Come To Me, went to number one on the jazz charts. In addition to all this... My guest today is a multi-studio owner with studios in Sonoma, California and Nashville, Tennessee. He's a producer that I actually work for quite often as an engineer here in the Nashville studio, so I'm feeling pretty at home right now. My friends, please welcome to the Modern Recordist, playing us into the show with a song that he wrote, Cliff Goldmacher. How could I possibly know what it would take to make you look at me? Whether you ebb or you flow, how much sugar to put in your tea? I'd be wasting my time trying to get you to make up your mind. There's no way I can make your heart fall. What I say makes no difference at all No one told Ella how to swing It's a chemical thing Either it is or it ain't not that I'd mind if the answer was yes But I'm not gonna sit here and wait Cause you're not a teacher and this ain't a test I know what I like But I can't convince a bolt of lightning to strike, no There's no way I can make your heart fall what I say makes no difference at all No one told Einstein what to think It's a chemical thing 
If there's chemistry We'll interact inevitably But there's no way I can make your heart fall What I say makes no difference at all No one told Marilyn when to It's a chemical thing It's a chemical thing Awesome. Uh, what tell us the name of that song? That one is called Chemical Thing, and I wrote that with my friend Scott Carter a couple of years back. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you uh, being here on the show today, Cliff, and um, this is going to be fun. I, I uh, you know, we work together a lot, and it's fun to uh, get the drop in while you're in town because you're always around everywhere, and uh, it's a fun thing. And usually, you're the guy behind the screen, and today we're sitting in the room together, and. Uh, yeah, it's going to be fun. So thank you for hosting The Modern Recordist at your studio today and uh, being a guest on the show. I'm happy to do it, really. Awesome. This is this is fun, and it's nice to be uh, recorded by a recording engineer instead of doing it myself. It's very decadent. <laughs> awesome. So I was uh, putting um, together, kind of doing a little bit of homework and stuff like that, just kind of getting prepped up for the show, put it together um, how I wanted my intro to go, and uh, making sure I was hip to all the, the latest kind of stuff that you've been doing and have done, and... When I was putting all this together, I, I was like, wow, like it just kind of really like I never I guess I never really stopped to think about it too much. But you're like you're super prolific. You've done a lot of things. It's, it's interesting. You know, uh, our relationship is, is very focused. You know, we work as producer and engineer together and we've been doing it for almost a decade now, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but yeah, we don't ever talk about the other stuff that I do, which is, you know, fully two thirds of the other stuff that I do is stuff that we don't ever talk about. But yeah, you know, you stick around long enough and yeah. get things done, I guess. Yeah, that's cool. So, um, yeah, I want to circle back around to that song really quick. Um, and you said, who'd you say you wrote it with? I wrote it with Scott Carter, who's okay. a collaborator of mine who lives here in Nashville. Cool. And so where, uh, tell like kind of the story of, of that song, like where did, was that w w for an artist cut or uh, kind of where did that song end up? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. Scott and I met back in the day when we were both doing uh, writer's nights around town. So this is a, <laughs> quite a few years okay. ago, probably the mid 90s, if I had to guess. Mm -hmm. And uh, Scott is a fabulous artist in his own right. Great singer, great guitar player, great songwriter. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the first times we got together, we were just talking about whatever you talk about before a session starts. Mm -hmm. And um, he was saying something about the fact that, you know, you think you know someone and you don't really know them. Like, for example, you could never know exactly how much cream someone wants in their coffee. That's yeah. such a personal yeah. thing. And so that was kind of the jumping off point for the song. There's a line in the song about how much sugar you want in your tea. Uh -huh. And it was it was based on this idea that on some level, we can't possibly know what another person is thinking or how they feel. Uh -huh. So that was kind of the, the cool. basis of it. That's awesome. Yeah, fun. So, uh, yeah, so you guys just, uh, you, you 
wrote and recorded that together and uh and then uh where where did it go from there and you know at this point i'm really the only person that's made a recording of it cool um i put it out on a compilation uh, a while back uh, and i'm trying to remember the name of the compilation now but it, it made it out there a little bit but for the most part it's one that uh although i don't perform very often mm-hmm. it's one that i generally do in my shows just because cool. it sort of sits in my three note vocal range really nice nice <laughs> cool so, um, you've written something like a thousand songs. Did I have, I have that right? Yeah, but not today. Right. It's yeah. been over the years, yeah. <laughs> all today, all in like the last... You before wrote a thousand you, songs this week, right? Yeah, before yeah. you came over this yeah, morning, I just right. sat down and yeah, knocked out Yeah, that's thousand. how like most people... Anybody at the top, that's how it goes, right? That's yeah. how we do it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, top of what? <laughs> you can fill in the blank. <laughs> uh, take that for what you want. But, but uh, uh, yeah, you've written like a thousand songs... And so that's something that's super prolific and not um, something that happens by accident. No, certainly not. You know, for me, uh, moving to Nashville when I did, and I was living in the Bay Area, I'd gone to college in the Bay Area and was doing what I refer to as playing guitar for drunk people for a living. I was playing bars and, and I was starting to write my own songs and I'd written a couple of them and they were such dramatic things for me because I was so new to the process. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I would write a song and I would agonize over it. I'd stay up late and I'd wake up early and yeah. try and work on it some more. Okay. And and it wasn't until I moved to Nashville that I realized, you know, it's not necessarily about agonizing over any one song. As much as it, as it is just sort of learning your songwriting process by writing a lot. Mm. And when I got here, it became abundantly clear to me that collaboration and just writing all the time was the way I was going to get better at yeah. this. And so those thousand songs, a lot of them came from me writing with other songwriter friends of mine as we were kind of learning um, our craft. Yeah. You'll notice that I didn't say I've written a thousand great songs. Right. That, that didn't yeah. come up. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of it is just kind of learning what you're doing. Yeah. Um, but I've always believed that songwriting is a muscle. And the more right. that you work it, the stronger it gets and the easier it becomes. Yeah. Um, that's something, you know, that I, I, I like to talk about a lot, uh, kind of drill into with people lately. It's been an interesting conversation. I don't know if you've ever, have you ever uh, come across the book The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield? I believe I've heard the name, yeah. but I've not read it. It's, uh, I, I, I need to reread it. I've read it once and I need to reread it. But it's, that's the com- the common theme is um, about, you know, profession. He's a, um, he's a, uh, like an author, book author, and he's written some, uh, like, movies screenplays and things uh but uh you know he talks a lot about professional you know you you show up to do the work you know and it's and it's like showing up to do the work and um you know having a discipline to finish the work yeah and uh you know not this idea of like i think a lot of um where people can can uh sort of I'm waiting for inspiration to strike or whatever yeah. and it's like well you've got to show up and you got to clock in and do the work and so um you know when you have a catalog that you've you know you've you sounds like you've done that work you know and and you kind of like you were talking about um just showing up to Nashville to to you know and kind of putting in the work that way but what does it kind of look like for you like you know what is that because it's not you know from the outset in I think a lot of times uh or, you know, in isolation, like one creative to another, creating art in isolation um, can maybe kind of come up with these preconceived notions about like, well, there's a gap, you know, not misunderstanding what the gap is between this guy 
you know, he does all this and he's achieved this and I'm not doing it, you know, and not, not really thinking about like, what's an actual day in the life? How do you, how do you actually create a body of work like that? You know, what's your discipline? Well, you know, I think the, the danger and the thing that can be a little bit daunting if you're a new songwriter is, you know, you're listening to a podcast and the, and the host says to the guest, oh, you've written a thousand songs and your immediate reaction is, oh my God, I can never, you know, how in the world am I going to be able to write a thousand songs? Well, you do it over 2,000 days, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, over all of these, these years and years and years. And by the way, it's closer to 25 years now that I've been doing this. So it wasn't like I sat down and wrote a thousand songs yeah. like I was joking about. It really is just so much of a career in music is about these little tiny incremental steps. Mm-hmm. And so... As far as the way I look at it, and still, by the way, look at this, is I just kind of have to get up every day and do something. And that something is going to add up. And it's, it's amazing to me how, and I only halfway joke when I, when I say that the first 20 years in the business is the hardest. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's this thing that happens after you reach sort of a critical mass of effort which is that good things start to happen seemingly randomly, Mm. when in fact there's nothing random about it at all. Mm -hmm. You've done 20 years of sort of grinding and day in and day out writing songs. And I'll give you an example. Recently, uh, a song of mine looks like it's going to get picked up by an artist. It's written 13 years ago. Mm. So 13 years ago, I wrote this song and then got up the next day and wrote something else. And, you know, on some level you remember it, but on another level you just move on. Yeah. And it's amazing how over time... If you're consistent in your work, good things start to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, how do you kind of, how would you sort of, or, or, or when thinking back to when you kind of like were at the beginning, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how do you sort of stay motivated towards that? Some people, you know, it's like they maybe kind of have the uh, the vision of what they want, sort of the end result but then sort of like staying motivated on a daily basis for those little things. You that, know? That's it. That, the, that is the word. Motivation is the word because your motivation has to be so much stronger than any sort of material rewards that you're going to be getting along the way. Mm-hmm. So much of this is about just sort of doing the work. And for me, and I think if you're lucky enough to find something in your life that you're, you're actually passionate about, I, I think for me, the motivation was I'm genuinely moved to do this. Mm-hmm. Like, I want to do this and I want to get better and I want, you know, I actually had to stop and think not that long ago about sort of what, what I'm wired, why I'm wired like I am. Mm-hmm. And, and what is it that if I had a sort of a lifelong mission statement, what is that? And it's kind of been unchanged since the beginning, which is for me to connect with people through songs, mm-hmm. whether it's writing the songs or, as you well know, you know, recording songs for clients, helping them mm-hmm. sort of put their songs in the best light. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's always about sort of connecting with people through songs and to get all the way back around to your question. I think that's always on some level what's what's motivated me. Cool. Just connecting. Yeah. That connection that, that music yeah. can make. So uh, you mentioned um, so you'd written this song and like 13 years later, it was up to get placed and so it's kind of like it made me think of i think it was thomas edison had said like the harder i work the luckier i get that's it you know and something in in what you were saying was kind of like reminding me of that but um how does something like that happen if you're if you, you so you've written this you, you wrote wrote a song and then like 13 years later 
uh, because a lot of times, um, you know, in, in sort of like entertainment business and kind of like what we do, whether it be, uh, you know, in the production world or whether it be in the songwriting world or, you know, uh, an artist, um, it's kind of like what's the everybody's like, well, what have you done lately? Yep. You know what I mean? I, I can remember working with a um, producer who had had a, a credit list, some pretty huge famous people. Right. And but but then there were some projects where people were still kind of like trying to these A&R guys are trying to like nickel and dime and stuff and and hey will you do a will you audition or do one on spec or whatever and it's just like wow even this guy you know like um so a lot of times it can be like uh what have you done lately and that kind of thing but when you're talking about uh you know a song that was written 13 years ago um how does something like that happen where it didn't sort of like disappear into the ether and then and well then... That, i mean that's the question right yeah. and so i i think for me there, there are a couple of there are a couple of parts to this story and one is um relationships and i and i you know i hesitate to use the word networking because it, it comes with sort of this extra freight of schmoozing yeah. and staying out late and doing and it's it's not that what i mean by networking is the people that i met in the first couple of years that I moved to Nashville are still the people that I, on a regular basis, interact with. Um, and in this particular instance, when I first moved to town, I was I needed a day job, mm -hmm. like almost anybody who moves to town. Mm -hmm. And I worked at a magazine selling advertising. And fortunately, it was a music magazine, so I met some pretty interesting people, but they really only knew me as the ad guy, okay. right? So I met the head of a label called Putumayo. And Putumayo is this, if you haven't seen them, they're... Um, these multicolored sort of covered world music CDs that you find in Whole Foods okay. and some sort of clothing okay. stores, you'll recognize them if you see them. Um, and I became friends just as the guy who sold ads to the president of that company. So I'll try and keep this somewhat abbreviated. Long story short, years later... We have plenty of time on the show, by the way. So <laughs> well, then, you can then tell the long version if you want. Take but, a drink of water yeah, and yeah, lie down. Yeah. It's going to be a minute. Um, so long story short, years later, when I was doing music full-time, I reached back out to Dan and I said, Dan, I don't know if you even remember me, but Cliff Goldmacher, and I used to sell you advertising. And uh, after a series of back and forths, I, he agreed to listen to something that I was working on. It was a jazz project for a woman named Heather Rigdon. Cool. And Dan liked the project, liked it enough to where he took one of Heather's songs and put it on a compilation. Um, and this was because, well, on some level, it was because we knew each other. I mean, I would like to hope that he's only putting things on there that he genuinely thinks are worthy. Mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. but I guarantee that foot in the door was because I was the guy that sold him advertising right. you yeah. know, 10 years prior. Yeah. Long story short, because Dan became a fan of Heather's, He's just always kept her on his radar, mm -hmm. and a song that I wrote, ironically, with Scott Carter, is also on that same Heather record, and Dan just loves the record and was cool. considering using another one. And so there's sort of circles within circles, right? Yeah. Like, it's it's relationships, and it's staying in touch, in, and in not a sort of manipulative or sort of seedy way. Mm -hmm. I, I just genuinely feel like when you have a group of people that you know, and you've got a shared history... It's easier to do business then and have it feel more organic as opposed to you just wanting something. Mm -hmm. So in this instance, that's why that song that, that Scott and I wrote 13 years ago was on Dan's radar. Mm. So, yeah, it's about uh, it's about you know, building authentic relationships. A at the end of the day. Yeah. And, and you were saying, like, you know, that, that uh, um, you had hoped that Dan put that song on there because he genuinely really liked the song. But it's also and, and that's totally the you know the case but it's also 
you know, it's kind of, I feel like, a two-part thing, right? Like, like maybe somebody liked the song, but they probably wouldn't have known about the song or whatever had you not been sort of on their radar and, like, reached out to them and made that connection and, and kind of, in a way, like, you know, presented and uh, pitched something, in, a, in effect, you know? And that, that actually, if you want to talk about day-to-day routine, um, at the end of the day, as, as great a songwriter as you may be, if you are unwilling to do the unromantic work of checking in with people and seeing if they're looking for songs mm-hmm. or figuring out ways to get your songs out in the world, then you will be a very, very talented songwriter that no one has ever mm-hmm. heard mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just so tempting to think. And believe me, I was guilty for the longest time. The temptation is to think if I just get really good at what I do, it's all going to work out. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it doesn't work that way. In mm-hmm. my experience, at any rate, there are, I mean, a handful of people who are just so undeniably brilliant at what they do that the world comes to them. But for the rest mm-hmm. of us, mm-hmm. it is absolutely about getting up and doing the unromantic work of pitching your songs. It's, I mean, you've got a product and you've got to sell it. Yeah. And that's the, that's the end of it. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, that really resonates. That's that's awesome. Um, so I want to uh, I want to uh, get into a little bit of like the nitty gritty of of writing a song, like um, how you approach it. You know, when you're sitting down to write a song, uh, like how do you typically start, and uh, how do you typically keep your kind of your creative flow going through to completion? Well, I think it's changed. Over the years, early on, I was writing by myself, for myself, and the process was completely unpredictable, and basically all the planets had to line up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's not exactly, you know, a reliable method. Right. As um, we were kind of talking about, like, that's kind of what uh, uh, the War of Art is kind of all about, you know, blowing the blowing that uh, idea just kind of out. Yeah, it, does, it yeah. doesn't work if you want to write consistently. Mm-hmm, it it mm-hmm. works if you're genuinely looking at this as something where you're just going to wait until you're completely inspired. I mean, there's no shame in that. Mm-hmm. But if you want to have a career at this, it's not really a viable yeah, method. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then when I moved to town, so much of my co-writing was just with other songwriters, like all the people who, <laughs> metaphorically speaking, we all got off the boat together, right? So mm-hmm, we all came okay. to town around the yeah. same time. Um, and we were writing songs and we were kind of messing up and learning how to do it. And and I know this is going to come as a shock to you, but I'm a bit of a control freak. <laughs> and uh, so for me, it was really hard to let go in a writing session. Okay. I had It took me a long time to realize, oh, hey, dummy, stop for a second. And why don't you just figure out what you're good at? and what your collaborator is better at Mm. and let them do the thing that they're better at Mm -hmm. instead of imposing Mm -hmm. your mediocrity on them Mm. and then you'll both end up with something that's better than you could have done alone. Mm -hmm. So it took me a lot lot of years to learn that. Mm -hmm. These days, and and now I'll get into sort of the nitty-gritty of what my writing process Mm -hmm. is like because this has been my reality for like the last 10 years, I write with artists for their records. Mm -hmm. So it is no longer me writing, with very few exceptions, it's rarely me writing with another songwriter. It's more that it is my job, since I've been doing this for a while, Mm -hmm. to sit in a room with an artist, some of whom I've met before, some of whom it's essentially a co-writing blind date, Mm -hmm. And to very, very quickly and hopefully organically get into their headspace, figure out what's meaningful to them, and then help them articulate that in a song. Okay. So, so a lot of it for me now is knowing that the moment I sit down with someone, my antenna have to be up. Mm-hmm. I have to be – I mean, everything from body language 
to mm. their mood to what they're talking about. And I cannot tell you the number of times we've written a song based on an exact sentence or phrase mm. that an artist used. As a matter of fact, there's a song I wrote with a, a wonderful New York artist named uh, Crystal Monet Hall. And she sat down and the first thing she said is, I'm a little bit tired of singing about love, mm-hmm. which we turned into the first line of the song. It just felt like such a, you know, a thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, I think these days so much of the writing process is just being receptive to what the other writer, artist writer, mm-hmm. is feeling and is moved by. Because at the end of the day, if we write a song that I'm really excited about that the artist doesn't like, that doesn't really do anybody any good. Because mm-hmm. I, I don't have an artist career. I'm not going right. to be out there yeah. performing. And if they don't like it, then I've essentially kind of imposed my will on them, which... Mm-hmm. That's not what it's about. Sure, sure. So, uh, so you, you kind of coming in uh, most of the time working with artist writers, uh, recording yeah. artists, pretty much. That's right. And so collaborating with them, and uh, and and it really just kind of starts with like a conversation and just kind of sitting down and just kind of like hanging out and making it comfortable and getting to know one another. And yeah, almost yeah. always, cool. almost always, that's how it starts. You know, I, I've I've been doing this long enough now. To where I'm, I'm comfortable with the concept of going in cold. Mm-hmm. It doesn't do me any good to come in with an idea generally. Okay. Because it's the artist's song. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really look at it as the artist's song. Yes, we're going to write it together. Mm-hmm. And yes, I'm going to do everything I can to, to contribute and, and make sure that mm-hmm. it, it's a, a strong song. But it's not my vision. It's right. Ultimately, okay. it has to feel like something that the artist is emotionally connected to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and let's take the best worst case scenario. We write a song that the artist has to sing in every show for the rest of yes. their career. Yeah. So, right. you know, put yourself as a, as a beginning writer, put yourself in that mindset and think to yourself, well, what can I write with this artist that they are going to want to sing? Yeah. Okay. Every time they sit down to perform. Yeah. Cool. Cool. And it just all starts with like a personal kind of emotional just Personal. Yeah, I mean, it's it's no secret that, uh, you know, being the son and brother of therapists, both my mom and sister are therapists. I actually didn't know that. Yeah, so that, you know, it's no secret that 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 is a a big part of kind of my approach to this, is just being a listener and and being Yeah, it's interesting, you know, and it's funny because it's like, um, you know, you can get caught up in sort of like the business of music so much that a lot of times you kind of have to hit the reset button and go, well, wait, but this is like, you know... All about emotion and art and all that kind of stuff is, is like where this stuff comes from, you know. Yeah. And, and it's funny how a lot of times, you know, um, I don't do a lot of co-writing. I really, you know, that's not really kind of my world. And so, but but I've got a lot of friends that do, and I'm having more of these kinds of conversations with them. And just it's funny how uh, even I guess even as a, a producer, you know, uh, in the kind of production work that I do. Uh, sitting down and having it, it always kind of starts with those kinds of conversations and just like like talking about personal stories and maybe even getting a little bit vulnerable and things like that and just setting up a safe space where you can just kind of have those conversations. Oh, that's, that's it. That's yeah. exactly it. And, and I'll tell you something else. I, and I, I look at this the same way I look at studio technology. I've spent many, many, many years working on the nuts and bolts of songwriting, the craft of songwriting, mm-hmm. so that in a perfect world, that disappears. I have that mm-hmm. as my mm-hmm. sort of structure, but I want 
the writing session to feel more like a conversation, mm-hmm. not more like, okay, now I know we need a pre-chorus. Right. I don't want to talk about that yeah, stuff. It's yeah. my job to sort of know that internally and guide the process. You know, a lot of times the artists that I work with may be exceptional vocalists and great performers, but don't have the benefit of a thousand songs under their sure, belt. Sure, So, you know, a lot of that craft, a lot of that nuts and bolts kind of construction stuff mm-hmm. needs to be there, but it doesn't need to be visible. Right. So that it feels like just an extended conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes me think of a Bruce Lee quote, which was... Uh, uh, I. What was it? Um, when I started, when I started in martial arts, um, a a punch just looked like a punch, and a kick just looked like a kick. And then as I progressed, and uh, it, it, a punch looked nothing like a punch, and a kick looked nothing like a kick. And then once I became a master, a punch just looked like a punch, and a kick just looked like a kick. So it's kind of like I don't know, it just sort of like disappeared, and it was about a sort of like a higher order of of things, you know. That's it. Yeah. You, you stop. Finding the need to think about how songs are supposed to go, that's internalized. Mm-hmm. And and what's nice about that is you can keep your focus on the artist and about their experience in a way that, that allows you to just stay, like you said, vulnerable and open and safe mm-hmm. without sort of breaking that kind of it's almost trance like sometimes mm-hmm. when things are going well and you don't want yeah. to break that yeah it's it's like you find the flow like yeah. you just get into the flow that's, that's really cool word. yeah very cool so um to you this is kind of a higher level higher sort of abstract question but uh what makes what kind of like makes it up the essence of of a good song mm. so so i'm going to uh, i'm going to give you a bit of my philosophy about good and bad songs. Okay. okay. So, so for me, I, I actually I, I'm very hesitant to use those terms. Okay. Uh, good to me sort of implies that there is such a thing as a bad song. Mm-hmm. And you know, well, the example I always use, and please forgive me, Billy Ray, but "Achy Breaky Heart" mm-hmm. is not a song that I would rave about. Mm-hmm. But I kind of wish I'd written it. Yeah. So, right. so okay. is that a bad song? Well, maybe years ago I would have said, "Oh, God, that's a bad song." Mm-hmm. Um, but it was moving enough to where it became a big hit. So it moved right. enough people, heaven help us, to where it became yeah. a, a big hit. So, so I almost look at good and bad, and, I, and I'm sincere about this. I look at good and bad as did I achieve the vision that I set out for when I sat down to write this song, or did I not? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm imagining the arc of the song. Did I did I nail my vision of how I thought this song was going to go? Mm-hmm. Or did it somehow fall short? Like, does it not move me the way I hoped it would? Okay. And that's how I define good and bad now. Okay. Not, is, you know, not in some sort of objective, these are good songs and these are bad songs, because there are songs that I don't care for that have been tremendously successful that other people sure. love dearly. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, good and bad is kind of relative. But sure. for me, I usually use those terms to define, in my own work, um, is this good in the sense that I achieved what I set out to achieve, mm-hmm. or didn't I? Cool. So what's that? It's just like kind of tapping into a uh, like an emotional response in yourself and being connected to that emotional right. response. That That's exactly yeah. it. You know, if I were to listen back to the song either the next day and often it's the next day mm-hmm. when the truth kind of comes out because okay. you're so wrapped up in the process the day of that everything feels, you hope, everything feels good. Um, the next day when you listen to it, does it still do the thing? Is it still mm-hmm. moving you the mm-hmm. way? And if it isn't, maybe there's something that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. 
uh, so with the like the vision of the song and all that stuff, is it kind of like you're you're going? Uh, maybe I want to write a song about this, or or you kind of maybe you know based on a conversation you had with somebody or something, it comes up and goes, and it's just like that feels like something that that feels right. Let's follow that lead. Yeah, and it's not that I can even always articulate the vision at the outset. Yeah, right. But I guess what I mean by the vision is. By the time you listen to the whole song, by the time it's done, have I taken the message? Have we as a collaboration, and you know, this is never just me on my own, mm-hmm. have we as a collaborating team articulated this message in a way that we are both proud of that is sort of watertight? Like, did we stay on the theme? Did we, did we really bring it home? And is it moving? Is there mm-hmm. juice in this thing? Mm-hmm. Or is it just this kind of nicely crafted, completely devoid of emotion thing, uh-huh. which is the risk if you worry too much about the craft and not enough about kind of the, the emotional seed of the song. Mm-hmm. So, and it's, a, a, a imagine that it's like a, a, a level of kind of trusting yourself. You know, if you're using like sort of your internal sort of emotional gauge to go, am I moved or whatever? And after a while, just, uh, you know, kind of like, yeah, and trusting yourself. Yeah? That, that's a great observation, and that's exactly it. You know, so many beginning songwriters don't think they've written a good song until someone else tells them they mm-hmm. have. I mean, that's you can't do that. You can't do that and sustain a career. Mm-hmm. You can't rely on other people's opinions of your music. I mean, it always feels good. Mm-hmm. It always feels good for someone else to like your song. But I, I think about, well, here's a story that I love. Um, I got a chance to work with Julie Gold, and Mm -hmm. and Julie is a New York-based songwriter who wrote a song uh, called From a Distance that Bette Midler recorded, and it won the song for Grammy Song of the Year. It won the award for Grammy Song of the Year. Now, like it or not, that's about as good as it gets in our business. Song of the Year is what you want. Right. Um, She played the song for Clive Davis, who, by all standards, is a tastemaker. He knows what is, and large quotes here, Good and bad, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. He she played that song for him prior to it getting cut, and his response, if I remember Julie's story correctly, was, "It's a really pretty song, but there's no commercial potential here." Mm. So, so if at that level, those kinds of decision makers can be, and let me put this exactly right, one hundred percent wrong, mm-hmm. then why not just listen to your own gut? Yeah, yeah. There's no one else to believe at that yeah. point. Yeah. Interesting. Very cool. That's that's uh, I love it. Um, and that's, I think, uh, a, a really um, I, I, I think that that's a big I, like with up and coming kind of people who who haven't uh, maybe less experienced, you know, um, I think that trusting yourself, you know, um, is a big one, you know, and letting things kind of that be the seed uh, to kind of let everything from from that flower out, you know, to to just be your barometer for, you know, what you create. It takes time. Yeah. And, and I don't want to be unfair. It's very, very difficult early on, and I struggled with this for many years. It's very difficult to trust yourself. And I think the only way to end up trusting yourself is to actually put in the time. The more that you write, the more you'll know whether or not you're speaking to your own artistic voice. Mm-hmm. Um, early on, you're just kind of throwing darts at a dartboard. You know, mm-hmm. you, you just don't know. Um, but the more that you write, the more you'll be able to sort of tell, hey, this feels like when I'm at my best. Mm-hmm. And that that comes in time. That does not come right away, at least not for, not for most mm-hmm. of us. Cool. 
So um, here's some here's some uh, kind of like switch gears just a little bit into some like kind of like lifestyle questions because I'm kind of interested in this. Uh, um, one of them, I guess, it's kind of like it's a good segue is like to talk about a little bit about fear and anxiety mm-hmm. kind of stuff because uh, as you're starting out, um, uh, you know kind of trying to find your way and not having as much experience sort of trust yourself. And then you're kind of putting yourself out there, uh, making yourself kind of vulnerable. And it can kind of be a, a scary thing to say, you know, like here's this song that my art that I created and now I've got to show it to people and now I've got to get some feedback or, you know, maybe I'm going to play, um, play live, play the stuff in front of people. Maybe I'm going to play it in a boardroom in front of, you know, some decision makers or gatekeepers or something like that. You know, there's a lot of places where like that fear and anxiety can crop up and then and then people can maybe kind of hold themselves back. Um, Can you talk about your experience with that and sort of like how you pushed through as you kind of came up? Yeah, you know, it is. It's a very real feeling, especially early on, making yourself vulnerable when songwriting is such a personal process. You know, my greatest fear for the longest time as I was learning my craft was not that I would write terrible songs. It was that my songs would be mediocre. Mm. That was the fear. It was like, oh, yeah, Cliff, he writes his songs are fine. So you would have written rather kind of like had the feedback of people saying like, that's just terrible. Then Yeah. Okay. I, you know, on some level, I think I would have because okay. if, it, you know, one of the things I've observed over the years is that if you're emo- if you're evoking some sort of emotional response, then you're doing it right. Okay. But mediocre yeah. is like, uh, nah. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that was the fear. The fear was I, I was writing these things that just, even though they were deeply meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. They weren't. They weren't connect. It goes back to that idea yeah. of connection. Right. I wasn't connecting with anybody. They were just mediocre. So right. that was the that was the fear for a very long time. Was that I was just kind of doing okay. Yeah. And how do you figure that out? Like because I think a lot of people aren't gonna. Um, you know. I mean, have you ever had somebody say that's just flat out terrible? I actually had a guy tell me once, and this is my favorite part because this is a song uh, that other people enjoy. Okay. Of my, Told me he hated my song. Okay. Told me he hated it. Uh-huh. Which, first of all, let me just tell you something, boys and girls. There's never a time to tell someone you hate their song. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, if somebody in the industry, and this was a record exec. Okay. If, if somebody in the industry ever says that to you, I need you to remember that that speaks volumes about them and nothing about you. But when I, when I was told that, I just remembered thinking... Well, luckily, I'd had enough positive response from the song to where I could just sort of look at it as this oddity, mm-hmm. you know, that somebody yeah. would go out of their way yeah. to tell me they hated the yeah. song. Yeah. Um, and it, I mean, this was close to 20 years ago. I've not forgotten it. Yeah. yeah. But it, it didn't shut me down. Right. Okay. <laughs> just weird. Yeah. So, but but it's it can be difficult to decipher, I think, a lot of times because most people, even like, you know, record executives or... Um, there's, a, there's all kinds of people, right? That will that aren't gonna say that's terrible or I hate that or whatever. When in fact it's like it doesn't resonate with them, but they'll give you the feedback like you know, oh that's cool or or you know it's kind of like you know um, inauthentic feedback. How do you decipher that and figure that out and know that like um, that because it can be easy to think people go 
you get lost in that mediocre zone that you were talking about mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you're not getting this polarized feedback one way or another to kind of figure it out. How do you, how do you kind of figure that out? Well, and, and this comes back to just believing in yourself. You know, okay. I, I think that early on, uh, professional song critiques and things like that and I don't mean industry execs I mean you know professional songwriters offer song critiques it's sometimes that can be really valuable just to sort of make you aware of the things that you might not know would help your songs but when it comes to getting sort of industry feedback even if somebody is seemingly nice to you and says I like your song at the end of the day um, you'll know because they'll put their money where their mouth is Right. So if they say they like your song and then they don't return your calls anymore or they don't get it to any of their artists to hear, well, that speaks a little bit louder than whatever they might have said. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you know, so much of this business is about just picking yourself up after somebody kind of lets you down like that. Yeah. And, cool. and you know, the, the most successful people that I know personally can take a punch. Sure. Cool. Awesome. Well, um, we are uh, we're getting nearing the halfway zone already so um i'm gonna kind of um gear up to do a little take a minute to do a couple promotional items and we'll kind of gear up to get into the next song and and hear another song from you um so uh real quick i want to tell you about recording drums 101 a free resource on my website simple tips for recording drums uh so i noticed in my uh 10 years of making records in the studio and working with a lot of people that um, uh, people can get bogged down in recording drums and that's a big source of overwhelm. So whether you are wanting to make a record or demo your songs or whatever and you're kind of, there's a there's a element of doing it at yourself, yourself and at your house kind of starting out and um, you can find, well, I want to write songs and record songs but then you get bogged down with all these technical things about trying to figure out how to set microphones up to record drums and things. And even people who are recording engineers, I've noticed, kind of picked up some bad habits and things. And so after 10 years of working with a lot of folks that uh, taught me a lot of great things, people who uh, have made some great records and uh, great record makers and otherwise studying other people who have made some legendary records, um, I just I learned um, some great takeaways from recording drums and i put together a resource recording drums 101 a home studio guide for pro sounding drums that focuses uh it's it's all the like the the bare essentials to just get you up and going you can just basically for all intents and purposes uh copy and paste these ideas so that you can stay in your creative flow and stay recording and these things are minimalist drum miking techniques that have been used on huge records legendary things uh you know like the john bonham drum sound things like this and they only use like three microphones so check it out recording drums 101 you can go to my website johnstinson.com that's j-o-n-s-t-i-n-s-o-n.com there's no h in john remember that on the front page scroll down a little bit and you can see the big recording drums 101 graphic just click that and uh, while you're there, make sure that you sign up to the email list using any of the forms on that page, and I'll send you tons more tips on recording drums and uh, lots of other goodies like podcast episodes and things like that. I'll keep you in the loop uh, constantly. So make sure you get uh, you get hooked up on that. And of course, if you're interested in making a record, uh, go to my contact page and let's talk about that. Whether you're looking for somebody to help you with some production stuff or record something or you maybe you've already recorded it and you're just looking for a great mix, uh, hit me up. Let's talk about your project. 
onwards to the show. We are going to uh, break away, and we're going to hear another song from Cliff, and then we're going to get into the second half of the show. And uh, here we go. Next song. Abe and Mary Lincoln were dining and a-drinking on Pennsylvania Avenue. While finishing his sherry, Abe says to Mary, I got a lot of things to do. Mary says to Abe, you're killing me here, babe. You're trying to save the world, I know. But a girl could use a night out. It's time to leave the White House. Abe, take me to a show. The slaves are free. No Grant, no Lee. But what about me? You know that I've got me. I never said a word I went to Gettysburg To hear you give that stupid speech You unified the nation By skipping our vacation How about emancipating me? And no, it can't wait till tomorrow I bought a new tiara And wouldn't that look apropos For a night out on the town So babe, don't let me down Baby, take me to a show the slaves are free, no Grant, no Lee, but what about me? You know that I've got needs and I refuse to be ignored. We're going to the Ford, and don't you try to tell me no. What's the worst that could happen? Put on your coat and hat and maybe take me to a show. What's the worst that could happen? Put on your stovepipe hat and Baby, take me to a Baby, take me to a Baby, take me to a show Awesome. So uh, tell us a little bit about that song. What was uh, what was that song called? That's called Mary Lincoln's Last Night Out. And it's based on my sitting down with a good friend of mine and, and longtime collaborator named Spencer Day. Spencer walked into the studio one morning and he said, listen, I have been writing a bunch of songs about famous women in history. What do you think about Mary Lincoln? Which is about one of the most random questions I've uh-huh. ever been asked. And so we, um, we just kind of batted around the idea and we're trying to think of sort of a, for lack of a better way to put it, uh, a more respectful approach. Uh-huh. And couldn't come up with much. And at some point I looked at Spencer and I said, well, what if we were to look at this? Where Mary is not necessarily the dignified historical figure that we all know her to be, but maybe a little bit more of a needy bimbo. How would that look? Uh huh. And that was sort of the jumping <laughs> cool. off point for the song. Awesome. That's fun. Um. So, uh, you know what? I want to. Uh, I want to jump back just a little bit and uh, talk about you coming to Nashville and when you first. Uh, when you first showed up here, and what brought you here? Obviously, like you know, music, but kind of what brought you? Here, but like, and what were you? Where were you before that? And what were you? What were you? What were you doing before that? So I moved to Nashville in 1993, and I had graduated from college in 1990, and spent a year living in the south of France because, well, somebody had to do it. <laughs> uh, and in that year, I actually thought I was going to be taking. I had taken. Let me back up. I had taken the LSAT. So I was all set to come back 
to the States after my year. I had a, a job teaching English in the south of France. Um, I was going to come back to the States, apply to law school, and rejoin Polite Society. Okay. Um, and in that year, since my teaching job was eight hours a week, I had nothing but time. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. And so I had my guitar with me, and I found a little French cafe where... I got a gig playing six nights a week. So okay. six nights a week, I would go into this cafe and do, at that point, it was almost all cover tunes. Okay. Um, I, that's sort of my brown-eyed girl, playing brown-eyed girl for drunk people okay. phase. Okay. Uh, and I did that for a year, but in that year, I started writing songs. And so I moved back to the States, and, and before I applied, thought about applying to law school, I, I thought I would just try and see what it was like to pursue music a little bit more sort of actively. Mm -hmm. So I started finding gigs around the Bay Area, and one of the things that I came across in that time, and this is now 92. And so, what, but that's where you grew up, though, like the no, Bay Area? No, oh, or, no. So, okay. I, yeah, I mean, that that's a whole other story. Okay, Long okay. story short, I went to high school in Memphis, of all places. Okay. I'm genetically a New Yorker, and uh, okay. we lived in Southeast Asia okay. when I was a, a kid. See, it's a little bit more complicated. <laughs> My dad worked for Pepsi. Okay. Uh, in marketing, okay. international okay. marketing. So we were all over Southeast Asia and then randomly ended up in Memphis, Tennessee. Okay. Long story short, I knew the South. Uh, and so, and I'd been to Nashville a couple times, uh -huh. but never, I mean, it, remember, I didn't think I was going to be in music. I, I was, I had a political science degree and I was going to law school, ladies so and like gentlemen. So like music w was something you were kind of playing around with for fun. And it was then... something that I just genuinely loved. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so when I got back, to California and started doing these gigs, I found an organization called the Northern California Songwriters Association. And this was my very first interaction with the music industry in as much as there is mm -hmm. any music industry in the Bay Area. Like Nashville and LA music publishers would come to, Cal to Northern California and we could play our songs for them. And this was, I mean, I can't even begin to tell you how terrifying and exciting all of that was. You know, mm -hmm. this is your chance to to connect with someone in the industry. And basically what I got from this was, if I'm going to take this seriously, and I'm 25 years old at this point, mm -hmm. I need to be in a place where people take this seriously. Mm -hmm. The Bay Area is beautiful, but it's not a music city. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and my choices, of course, were New York and L.A. and Nashville. And New York and L.A. just felt... They didn't feel user-friendly enough. Mm -hmm. you know. They just felt like expensive places where it would be too easy to get swallowed up. Yeah. And so I moved to Nashville cool. in 93 with okay. the thought, okay, I'm going to give this a go. Okay. Cool. So that's how I got here. And so when you arrived in Nashville, um, you were weren't you, you were kind of had your sights set on the artist thing at that's first? That's it. Okay. That's all I wanted. Okay. I wanted a record deal. This was around the time... Um, for you youngsters out there, this was around the time that Garth Brooks was really coming to prominence and he was cutting songs by folk singer-songwriters. And if, if I was anything, I was sort of a folk singer-songwriter. Mm -hmm. Mary Chapin Carpenter, another sort of folk singer-songwriter, got a record deal on Sony. So mm -hmm. I'm thinking to myself, this is my shot. I, I really want a record deal. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was writing songs, but I was writing songs kind of for me. Mm -hmm. And I was collaborating with people, but the idea was we were we were writing songs for me. Mm -hmm. At least that's how okay. I looked okay. at it. Yeah. Um, and that was, boy, I guess that was about the first five years that I was here. And I'll I'll get into the reasons I backed out of that. You know, later if you want. But oh, that was. I mean, you can now because that's actually kind of a follow up question I was interested in. Well, so first of all, um, what I found was that 
as a as a performer and a singer, I found myself constantly comparing myself to all of the mm-hmm. singer songwriters around me mm-hmm. because the way that it's sort of designed is that there are only so many spots on record labels Mm -hmm. and you have to be better than the people around you in order to get a record deal Mm -hmm. and so what ended up happening and this is really insidious you're not aware that it's happening at first is i started comparing myself to everyone and the more that i compared myself the more jealous i became and the more envious of real talent okay uh to the point where i woke up one morning realizing that i was genuinely unhappy Hmm. you know because if you're if you're gonna get jealous about talented people this is this yeah. is the wrong town to live in uh-huh. um it, it will it will really crush your spirit and yeah. i'm not by nature a jealous or envious person right but that's what was coming out okay and and i guess i would look at this as almost just a gift but i had always been fascinated with recording and always had some mm-hmm. sort of a recording setup and a guy whose music i really admired his name's tom kimmel songwriter in town, had a deal on Polygram in the 80s, um, really exceptional songwriter and great artist, had heard some of the recordings I was doing for myself and some of my friends and asked me if I would produce his record with him. Okay. And it was like somebody turned all the lights back on. Cool. It was like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I get to do music every day. I'm going to get paid for it. And I get to enjoy the talent of the people around me instead of envying it. This this is okay. what I want. Okay. And, and that was the beginning of the switch for me to where I wasn't so focused on being an artist myself as much as creating art yes. with the people who I admired. Awesome. Cool. So yeah. that moment for you allowed you to kind of turn a corner and, and go, I mean, you know, I can just, I can jump into this production thing and, yep. and, and I can find fulfillment there. That's what it was. Cool. Very cool. So um, that's a great way to uh, that's a great way to jump into some kind of like some production questions and kind of get into that area um, of the show. Uh, you are a, also a producer and an engineer, and um, we're sitting in your studio now. This is the studio where I end up doing a lot of uh, sessions throughout the month uh, with you sitting in the producer's chair in California. So it's a unique situation. Uh, and the studio recording setup that you have to put together uh, is kind of this unique remote recording thing, and people are w- listening in, in lots of different places. And um, can you can you maybe like kind of talk about this and like how you how did how did this unique vision of a studio come to be? And and uh, talk about kind of that business a little bit. Sure. So so after living in Nashville for a dozen years, I I moved to New York City. And there is an exceptional music community in New York, but the studio scene and the way that session musicians approach recording in New York is dramatically different from the way that session musicians work in Nashville. Okay. So, so for me, when I lived in Nashville full time, I would write a song. We would hire session musicians. They would come in, listen to the song, write a chart, and play it down perfectly the first or second cool. time. Yeah. End of discussion. Mm-hmm. This happens a hundred times a day, every day of the year in Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah, it's kind of mind-blowing. It's yeah. how it's done. Yeah. I moved to New York. I wrote a song. We brought in a session musician, and he sat down, and we kind of talked about it a little bit, and then he played a little, then he wanted to talk about it some more, and then he played some more, and then he and he had never written a chart, so he's kind of like, it felt like he was kind of just faking his way through it, mm. and it was making me insane. Okay. Now, the reality is that beautiful records get made in New York. Yeah. It's just a 
totally different system. And you would uh-huh. think it would be reversed. You would think New York is the go in and get it done town. Yeah, yeah. And Nashville is the let's just hang out. And it's it's not. That's interesting. It is. It was. Yeah. And I've it, never made a record in New York or anything. So, it's just yeah. a different scene. It's uh. much more sort of laid back and it's much less regimented. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I found myself thinking, oh, I'm not going to make it. I, I can't do it this way. Yeah. This is not going to work uh-huh. for me. So around that very same time, a friend had mentioned a piece of software that, for lack of a better way to describe it, turns your computer into an internet radio station. So whatever is on your computer, you can play and people can tune in. Cool. And so I thought to myself, well, wait a minute. What if I bring in my guys and gals, my super great session musicians, and I just listen while it's happening? And all I need to do that is an engineer who can be in the studio working with the musicians, and then the engineer and I can talk. Mm -hmm. And I can hear what I need in, in relatively good fidelity, and then do the sessions that way and sort of have my cake and eat it too. Cool. And that's how it started. Cool. Cool. And over the years, you know, we've refined the process. And John, you've been with me, I think, all but the very first year that I was doing this. Okay. Uh, you've you've been along for the ride, so you've yeah. seen it improve. I don't. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I, you know, time goes by, and you're like, oh, I've been over here a couple of years. <laughs> and you're like, you start thinking about it, you know, and I'm like doing like taxes or whatever, and I'm like, there's these invoices go back, you know, and. Uh, and when I stepped in, you know, I, I, I kind of, it's funny, like I, under the assumption that it had been going on a while or whatever, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't have really any idea of how long it had been going on before that, but yeah, we've been doing it a while and, and it has gotten down to a science and it's, uh, it's, it's, it is, it's a, it's a fun, it's a fun process, you know? And it takes to your infinite credit, it takes essentially a mind reader. We've been working together long enough now to where I don't have to ask for very much. You know, the thing, as technology improves, there's, and and, you know, we can talk about this a little, but by the time you get to the studio, everything that can be set up in advance is set up Mm -hmm. to the point where the heat is on in the studio, Mm -hmm. the charts are printed, and the session is up on the screen. Yeah. But then I'm out of it. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't have the luxury of setting up the mic in the right spot or pressing record Mm -hmm. and so much of that stuff in our interaction over the years has gotten to the point where it's almost all unspoken Mm -hmm. which is such a luxury for me you know it really does make me um able to just produce and not Mm -hmm. sort of whereas at the beginning it was all sweating the small stuff Mm -hmm. you know we were we were learning this stuff together Mm -hmm. well i really do appreciate that um you know and 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 something that i appreciate is is you know that that is kind of like a one of those small things you don't think about is but the fact that like the sessions are prepped so so well and then the charts are like printed out and all that you know routing's done you know there's a lot of uh there's a lot of sessions like where um you know if you just go to kind of do it the, the typical way you got to you got to show up hopefully the studio staff kind of has done some work ahead of time to set up some microphones or whatever but uh you know you got to show up maybe an hour hour and a half early to uh i mean do all the little tedious pro tools routing stuff and well how does your system work and you know idiosyncratic things of the yeah. of the of the studio and so that you know this it's very streamlined here and you know it's really my experience is just like walking in and and just hitting record i mean so it's cool well, you know what I love about that is it's it's all music and no technology. Mm-hmm. That that's what I that's what I want. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, you know, I love gear. 
I'm mm-hmm. a total gear nut mm-hmm. and I love technology and I'm the guy that reads the manual. I'm mm-hmm. that guy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but I don't want anybody to ever have to wait for me. Mm-hmm. In other words, if the session musicians are waiting, if anybody is taken out of their sort of musical center, then I've done something wrong. Mm-hmm. So for me, this idea that the session is set up and the routing is there and the, and the charts are printed, it just means that we get together and we make music and we don't have to worry about, although you and I both know that over the years there have been technical <laughs> glitches beyond anything we could have mm-hmm. ever imagined. Mm-hmm. Including, do you remember the time the entire system, including the internet, went down and we did this over the phone? I do remember we that. We held yeah. up a phone, a landline in front of the yeah. speaker. Yeah. That's quality That's awesome. stuff. That's awesome. No, I love it, though, because it's like this um, It's this attitude of, uh, like, you know, whatever it takes, we're going to get it done, you know? Yeah. And it's fun, and it's cool, and it makes for a good story and all of that stuff. So, cool. So, so. So the the studio came about out of necessity and something that you wanted for you know your songwriting practice yourself and then kind of have have has been able to incorporate it into more of like a bigger kind of bigger business and and you're able to work with all kinds of songwriters pretty much we've worked with people name some of those places where like some of the people we worked with uh, we've got clients in Taiwan Australia. Uh, all over Europe, um, it's Scotland. We did one for a client who was on an oil rig off the coast of Scotland. I mean, the, the, the thing that's so exciting about this is that there are so many songwriters in the world, and we just need to get to them. Yeah. And the thing for those songwriters that makes this so exciting is that they don't have the luxury, many of them, especially if you're on an oil rig in the ocean. Yeah. To get to Nashville to be part of this, mm-hmm. and this way they actually can be. They can hear the session as it's happening. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's an exciting thing. And, and for me, in all honesty, and, and this is not a dig on Nashville. I, it really isn't, because I love this town. Um, but one of the things that I found myself not enjoying was so much of the work that I was doing when I ran the studio myself and when I was living in town was for songwriters with publishing deals who thought of the studio as kind of a necessary evil, Mm -hmm. right? They come into the studio, they demo their song. There's not a lot of joy in it. Mm -hmm. You know, it was Mm -hmm. just sort of, we got to get this thing done. Is this what we want? Yeah, okay, goodbye. Mm -hmm. Whereas, I kid you not, when you have never heard a Nashville session musician or a Nashville singer sing on one of your songs, for a lot of these people... It is the single greatest thing that has mm-hmm. ever happened to them musically, and that joy is contagious. Yeah, that's cool. And it makes it so much more fun for me. I mean, I really have very little room anymore for people who don't remember that this is a joyful process. Right. I- I'm just not interested. Yeah. That's a good philosophy. I like that. Yeah. It makes me think about somebody that I knew, um, not in the music business, but but he had, he had created some, some uh, pretty... Pretty cool things in uh, like so the tech world, and he was saying like, uh, you know, I remove negative energy from my life immediately. You know, mm. there's just there's just no space for that because it can it can become, it, whether it's joyful, and you said joy, it's uh, you know that joy is contagious, but also the negativity can be contagious. You know? Absolutely, yeah. I, once uh, in the last, and it's really been a very long time, but once in the last ten years or so, I ended up doing a session for a friend of a friend who was a staff songwriter in town. And it, it brought me right back to sort of the worst of it. You know, mm-hmm. this person came in, they, they there was no excitement in it. They they laid out the song, they made a couple of comments and left. Mm. And it was like, ugh, that felt terrible. Yeah. 
I, yeah. I mean, I, it just didn't, there was nothing fun about that mm-hmm, for me. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas when you do this, and, and by the way, you know this about me, um, I think about my client's experience as the single most important part of it. Mm-hmm. And you've heard me talk to singers before to remind them to keep their outlook positive. Because even the slightest sort of comment, even an unthinking comment, that in any way appears critical or like they're not enjoying the song, can crush a new songwriter. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, you and I have had a conversation like that before about the idea that like a lot of times, and this kind of applies for it's something that I try to like keep in my head with like kind of all situations in life, but just in a certain sense, like it's like you kind of need to tell people subliminally what they think about it. Like if you were to <laughs> say, you know, one of the easiest things is like the easiest kind of examples is like if somebody sings uh, a line and then they immediately qualify and go, ah, eh, you know, and then all of a sudden now, whoever else, you know, maybe the songwriter, whoever, whoever else is like, oh, yeah, it's terrible because the singer just told you that it's terrible when in fact that's just the singer being, you know, self-critical, self-critical. You yeah. nailed it. And, yeah. and, you know, one of the things that I do, and I'm very careful about this, and you might not know this because we don't talk about it, but anybody who is going to work for me here, especially the singers, I will sit down with for an hour prior to them ever getting on mic and we'll talk about what is important to remember. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I say again and again is, please, under no circumstances, should you volunteer your opinion about anything that you sang? Mm-hmm. Please let me trust me as the producer and trust the client to ask if we want more. Mm-hmm. But but please don't vol- volunteer any opinions because it is amazing how quickly a client will um, sort of second guess something. Mm-hmm. If the singer, even if they're just being self-critical, mm-hmm. makes a comment like you said, like, mm-hmm. eh. Yeah. It, it, you know, and it just makes the work so much harder. Yeah. Yeah, I've had a lot of, you know, a lot of times just like working in the types of like with rock bands and custom projects and that kind of stuff where a lot of times the vocal sessions, you know, will be uh, a lot of it will be that will be just let's do some takes, you know, and then kind of like spending a lot of time coaching them to, to, to and telling them, I know that you think that, that like it's terrible, but trust me, like. That is amazing, and here's why it's amazing. And it might not be technically perfect, and it might not be on pitch or whatever, but that is it. That is magic. Like you believe just, it. You, you know? just define the job of the yeah, producer. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's cool. the job. That's cool. So I was going to ask, like, what do you? How would you describe what you do as a producer? Your style as a producer and your approach to production. How would you kind of describe that? I think for me, my job is really to help. And, and most of my clients, every once in a while, I will do an artist project. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of my work is with songwriter clients. And my job is just to sort of help them achieve what they're hoping their song will sound like. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm working with an artist on a record project, it has a lot more to do with just making sure that they're comfortable and doing mm-hmm. their best work. And, and that goes back to my earlier comment about making sure the technology disappears. We're just there to make music. And mm-hmm. my job mm-hmm. is to sort of keep this a safe creative place for the artist but i'm not a a producer who has sort of a signature sound you know there are certain producers Mm -hmm. who you know that it's their record because it sounds a certain way Uh uh that's not as much my thing Uh um i will play on people's records from time to time but a lot of times i'm really there just to sort of bring in the right people and make sure that the artist feels comfortable and creative cool 
I want to switch gears a little bit because we're going to be uh, kind of approaching towards the end of the show, and I want to switch gears and, and be able and and talk about a couple of things. I want to get into because you're an educator, you have the uh, another brand, the Educated Songwriter brand. You have uh, written the a book, um, uh, the Songwriter's Guide to Recording Professional Demos. You have you've done travel around consistently teaching workshops people like ASCAP, BMI, and the Nashville Songwriters Association International, Taxi, the list goes on. Uh, like we said at the beginning of the show, you're pretty prolific. <laughs> so I want to get into that a little bit. You've got some, uh, even some lynda.com courses. You recently did a TED Talk. I want to talk about that a little bit. Uh, that's a lot to talk about. Let's see what, how much we can get through. And uh, uh, yeah, talk about Educated Songwriter a little bit. This was sort of an outgrowth of no longer living in Nashville. I mm-hmm. realized that if I was going to stay connected to a music community, one of the things I needed to do was start to write articles about songwriting, about music, to sort of remind people that I was still out there. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this fear that if you leave Nashville, you sort of drop off the face of the the music community earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so one of the things that I was doing by writing these articles was just reminding people, hey, this guy is still in it. He's doing this, and and it was a way to kind of remind people that that I was still doing everything that I was doing, songwriting and, mm-hmm. and the studio. Um, and also, one of the things that happens when you've been at this long enough, and I'm sure you're seeing this in your own world, is that you start to have opinions. Mm-hmm. You know, at first, you're just so busy taking in information that you don't bother to stop and say, well, how do I feel about this? You're just so busy learning. Yeah. And then there was a moment where I realized, oh, well, I actually do feel something about this. And, and now I do have an opinion. And if one of my opinions can in any way sort of remove a little bit of angst from the process of somebody starting out, well, that's probably a good thing. Mm-hmm. And so that's where Educated Songwriters started. Now it's predominantly a blog. Um, and I write articles, you know, a couple of times a week. I'll put a post on the, on the blog um, but it's also I've I've written that ebook and the ebook um, has a lot to do with taking the fear and uncertainty out of recording in a professional studio. I think a lot of songwriters are afraid that well, any beginning person in the music industry thinks of the music industry as this kind of black box where they don't know what happens mm-hmm. on the inside and everybody's trying to steal their money. Uh huh. So my thought was, well, if I can demystify this a little bit, mm-hmm. sort of explain the demo process and show them what it's about, then maybe it won't be so scary and maybe people will take the plunge and do good work and, and get their songs out there properly recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not so much a home recording primer as it is a, you know, you need a professional demo. It's mm-hmm. not something you can necessarily do on your own unless you're as passionate about learning to record as you mm-hmm. are about writing songs, mm-hmm. which in my experience, most songwriters aren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to write songs, but they don't necessarily think of the recording process as something they want to get good yeah. at. They they, right. they think of it as a way of saving a couple of bucks. Right. Um, yep. And that can be that, you know, in my humble opinion, can do more harm than good. Right. Mm-hmm. So... For me, it was, okay, here's how, how the big kids do it, you know, and this is why it sounds the way it sounds, and here's what you can do to take stress out of the equation, here's how you can prepare mm-hmm. so you don't walk into the studio feeling totally overwhelmed, and it was, it was fun for me to write, and it's, you know, it's got audio examples in it that kind of help explain a little cool. bit. You know that great quote, and it's been attributed to so many different people, um, talking about music is like dancing about architecture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so so on some level, hearing the audio examples really helps. Yeah. 
totally. I uh, that's some of the episodes of this podcast where uh, I get a little bit more in the technical details of uh, all of a sudden when you're trying to explain like something, how to do this and Pro Tools or like how to set this mic up a certain way. And all you got is a microphone. And you're like, I don't know, man. <laughs> it's like, kind of tough know? to sell it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So um, awesome. So um you uh, you teach the workshops, traveling around and do that, and teaching workshops and things like that. What's the, what are those workshops kind of look like? I've picked a couple of topics. Um, everything from a workshop that I teach called the do's and don'ts of co-writing uh, to workshops. I've even written one uh, and put one together called the organized songwriter. I uh, <laughs> and I know this is not going to come as a surprise to you. <laughs> I am the kind of person who gets up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and makes the bed. Like, I'm, I'm crazy organized. Um, maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but not much. And, and so I put together a workshop that is about how to keep yourself organized as a songwriter. Like, mm-hmm. it's one thing to write great songs. It's another thing when somebody asks if you can send them something and you can't find it. Yeah. yeah. You know, so I... I I speak on a variety of topics, but those That's are just cool. a couple. Yeah, there's, uh, there's something about, you know, that cliche idea of, like, creative people who are disorganized and disheveled and kind of scatterbrained and whatever. And uh, there's this technique that I came across recently where these guys were talking about Konkyo Kaizen. It's kind of like this Japanese technique for basically being organized, you know, and, and having this uh, method of always kind of having a specific place for each thing and then going on to talk about how that will help you creatively help you with your mind to be able to uh, focus on whatever it is that you're creating even if it's uh you're an office you know you have an office job or something like that you can be a better ceo you can be a whatever it is you're just better at it when you have things in order and and it's not uh david allen the getting things done guy talks about that because you keep it all in your head and when you keep it all in your head you're subconsciously spinning, spinning. brain cycles on yep. that yep yeah. I, i'm a believer yeah. you just described this stuff that's cool so uh the lynda.com courses um yeah, that's yeah. been a thrill. So, you know, lynda.com is an online education video company. And I heard about them a couple of years back because I was trying to learn WordPress so I could work on my websites. And uh, a friend of mine in Sonoma was teaching for Lynda on another, on some of the Adobe products. So something kind of unrelated mm-hmm. to music. Um, but she said to me, you know, you should reach out to those guys. They might be interested in some songwriting courses. So I, honest to goodness, and and remember when I tell you this, this is the way you kind of have to think about this stuff. Mm-hmm. I just went to the website and sent them an email. Cool. And I said, look, I'm a songwriter, but I teach songwriting. Would you guys possibly be interested in having some of those courses on your site? And to my huge surprise, they got back to me and said, as a matter of fact, that sounds great. And we put together a couple of courses. I've got four courses on Linda now. Um and I don't know if you have show notes, John, but I actually have a link that you can provide for cool. your listeners. Yeah, we'll definitely link that, that up. gives them a free trial. Awesome. Um, but I guess, <laughs> for lack of a better way to put it, when I think of an online education company, mm-hmm. I think of like two guys in a room with a couple of big computer screens and a bag of Cheetos. <laughs> you know, that's kind of my image yeah. of what I was going down there to see. Uh-huh. Lynda.com, it, it's eight buildings, 500 oh, wow. employees. Full sound stages, wow. recording booths. Okay. They're not off. joking around. They're not joking yeah. around. As a matter of fact, they just got bought by LinkedIn. So, oh, really? So they're a, they're a, a okay. big company. Wow. So uh, they'll be given Creative Live a run for their money now. It's, it's yeah. a thing. Yeah, that's cool. 
Really cool. So uh, let's talk about the TED Talk. We're getting close to be having, you know, sort of the end of the show, and I really do want to talk about this. You recently did a TED Talk uh, in September, wasn't it? Uh, the end of so. August, I think. Okay. And that was in Memphis. Right. And uh, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, the title, Some Things I've Learned About Songwriting in 25 Years. That's it. Cool. And I don't want to give too much away of it because we do want people to go over and check out the uh, the talk. Uh, which we'll have a we'll also have linked up in the show notes. But uh, um, there was a couple. There's like four main things that you uh, that you kind of outlined with along with stories and playing a little bit of song examples throughout the talk. And um, there were a couple at the end that were uh, particularly interesting to me. Um, how important it is to write from what you know. Mm. So can can you maybe expound on on that for a sec? Well, I think you know so much of of what we're trying to do as we're learning to write songs is and everybody does this right. You're you're kind of copying your heroes. Mm-hmm. So when you start to write songs, a lot of times your songs sound like somebody that's been a big influence, and, and that's wonderful and it's a great way to learn. But at the end of the day, uh, until you find a way to sort of resonate with the stuff that you're writing, it's it's going to lack a little bit of that emotional core. Mm-hmm. And so writing from what you know at the end of the day, once you've sort of gotten past just learning technique, when you write from a place of experience, whether it's your own personal life experience or just your own emotional experience of a particular topic, it just seems to ring true. You know, it mm-hmm. just seems to resonate a little mm-hmm. bit better. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you, is there anything particularly that you do to kind of keep yourself sort of primed to have like things that you know to write from and keep from, you know, that place? I have spent uh, 47 years falling in and out of love and just basically living my life. Cool. And that's what I draw from. Cool. You know, it really is. I mean, it's amazing. I, I find, and this is something probably other songwriters can speak to as well. It is easier for me to write a heartbreaking, totally tragic song when I'm in a really happy place in my life mm-hmm. because I feel safe enough in where I am now to sort of draw on these sort of darker okay. experiences that I've had. Okay, It's almost harder to write a sad song when you're feeling sad mm-hmm. um, because you, everything's kind of shaky at that mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. But basically, living your life is what you draw from. Cool. So, yeah, personal experiences. Uh, the fourth point, uh, write songs because you love to write songs. Can you expound <laughs> on that just a little bit? Because it sounds like maybe there might be, that comes from kind of maybe a personal experience you had or lesson of kind of like um wondering about um you know uh, do i love this or not kind of kind of thing well you know i I think and and i'll use the quote that i use in the in the ted talk um the quote that i read and and i i looked for the person to attribute it to and i couldn't find them but the quote brace yourselves writing songs for the money is like getting married for the sex Mm. and and sort of the way that that (laughs) resonated with me was this idea that you know if you do make money from your songs that's really great um but it's not going to sustain you day in and day out Mm -hmm. because even the most successful songwriters their success rate is really really low Mm -hmm. you know based on the number of songs that they have written so if you don't actually love the process of songwriting and you're only kind of doing it for those financial hits that you get when things go well you're going to spend a lot of time unhappy mm-hmm. and whereas if you genuinely love writing songs then your default setting is going to be a happy one mm-hmm. and then if something good happens it's just sort of a bonus on top cool 
Awesome. It's been, uh, we're, we're out of time. We're going to get into the last song, into the show. Thank you for being here. It's been awesome. Thank you uh, for dropping in and, and being a guest on episode 41 of The Modern Recordist. Where can people follow up and find out more about you? We want to link up all your stuff in the show notes. Probably the best place would be cliffgoldmacher.com. Perfect. Awesome. So, uh, real quick, the last song that you're going to play, what's the title of that song? This last song is called Nice, and I wrote this with Fred Kohler and, again, my friend Scott Carter. Perfect. That's it for this episode. Uh, Get subscribed, stay subscribed. Make sure that uh, you jump over to iTunes, jump over to my website. You can get uh, hooked up on the email list there, and I will make sure that you always are subscribed to every... uh, uh, episode and uh, jump over to iTunes if that's a place where you like to catch podcasts and uh, search for the Modern Recordist. Click the little subscribe button and uh, while you're on iTunes, make sure you leave a rating and review as well. Good and honest ratings and reviews help communicate the value that you get out of this podcast and make sure that we can continue to bring on great guests and create great content for for you to enjoy. And uh, on that note, if you got something out of this episode and you know a friend or three or ten who would also get something out of this episode, make sure you share it with them. Drop a link in a text message or an email or a tweet or on a Facebook post and uh, share this podcast. And that is it for this week. There will be more for you next week. And in the meantime, go live your life of an extraordinary artistic visionary and create something impactful in the world. I'm well adjusted, I can be trusted You might even say I'm pretty swell Old movies make me cry, I'm a very normal guy Let me tell you why my life's become a living hell I'm nice, that's what I've been told I hope you never wind up in my shoes Ask anyone who's met me and all the girls who've left me I'm the nicest guy they ever knew I wonder what I'm missing I always try to listen When anybody offers me advice I want to be a jerk But I just can't make it work On a scale of one to ten I guess I'll always be a five I'm nice That's what I've been told I hope you never wind up in my shoes Ask anyone who's met me And all the girls who've left me I'm the nicest guy they ever knew it's easy but it's hard to be me well why don't you try being pleasant for a while i guess my mom was lying because no one else was buying when she said nice guys would always be in style i'm nice that's what i've been told i hope you never wind up in my shoes ask anyone who's met me and all the girls who've left me I'm the nicest guy they ever knew Oh, I hope this never happens to you Cause I'm the nicest guy you ever knew Ooh